Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I'll begin at verse 10, focusing on verses 12 through 16. We'll read 10 through 16. I forgot to mention during the prayer, uh, late in the week we found out that Dan Hannenberg uh, is in the hospital now, and uh, he is there with, with AFib of the heart, and so they've been trying to to get that straightened down. So I'll read the, uh, read the passage, ask God to bless uh, our looking into his word today, and then we'll lift up a prayer for, for Dan Hannenberg as well. So let's hear from God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. So let us hear um, God's eternal truth this morning. Philippians 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Great God, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, what we are not, make us. We ask, O God, that you would hear our prayer, feed us from your word, and we do lift up prayers for our brother Dan Hannenberg as he is in the hospital. We pray for the doctors who are looking into his situation, the nurses who are caring for him. And we pray that you would bring about a good result there, that he might return home, if it be your will, very soon. And we pray also for his, his heart, his soul, strengthen his faith, lift the eyes of his hearts up to Christ uh, in the heavenly places, and feed him even today with the Sabbath day's blessing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I've always seen the mile run as one of the most fascinating things in sports. There's something about that distance. It is not a sprint. It's 1,600 meters, 5,280 feet, much longer than a sprint, but it's over in a fairly short time. The the world's greatest coming in under four minutes. And that that four-minute mile was uh, quite the barrier in sports, sir. Roger Bannister was the first one to break that mark, the four-minute mile. It had become something of a human obsession. Bannister said it was like Everest, a challenge for the human spirit. There were concerns that running at such a pace for such a distance would, would be dangerous for the human body, that it, that it might bring about death, and that it might not be attainable at all. 
Bannister, of course, believed it could be done. Interestingly, he studied medicine. He went on to a, a long and fruitful, productive life in medicine. And he actually believed at the end of his life that was his greatest achievement, what he had done in the field of neurology. And to run a race like that, at that pace, the greatest aspect of the, the mental game is that the singular focus on what lies ahead. A catchy phrase that I read from one theologian, one biblical scholar this week regarding this passage, which has to do so much with a race. You cannot focus on the distance attained or the speed maintained. You can't focus on that. You can only focus on what lies ahead. You can't rest in what lies behind. Focus on what is ahead, the next steps, and the goal that you are trying to achieve. This is an ancient aspect of running strategy, a modern concept of running strategy. And Paul employs it in this passage in order to give us a picture of life in Christ. Life in Christ, he likens unto a race, and he gives us a strategy of how to run it. There are things behind us. But what should occupy our focus, what should drive us, drive our hearts and our pursuits, is what is in front of us. And what is in front of us is Christ, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, put Christ in front of you as he is and run towards him. For we will see and savor the fullness of glory and the fullness of the glory of Christ when our life on this earth is done. So our our main ideas today are this. First is a starting line victory. A starting line victory. Second is this, how to run in victory. And lastly, run to see the victor. Run to see the victor. So we took a couple of weeks to go through verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. We didn't even get to every phrase or every word. There's so much there. It is a wonderful passage for the Christian life. It requires our close attention. Remember that the main thrust of that passage is Paul uh, giving a safeguard for the Philippian Christians and then, of course, to us as well. Guarding our faith, guarding our confession of the gospel of grace. What does a heart of faith look like? What does it look like to have faith in Christ? Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. We are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. It is those who have a faith in a gospel that ascribes all of the glory to Christ, to God in Christ. A faith that puts no confidence in the flesh, in our own achievements in righteousness. Those who remain steadfast in the truth of the gospel. And we saw last week that the heart of faith gives three, gives to us three unmatched blessings. Gaining Christ, being found in him, and knowing him. Gaining Christ, being found in him, and knowing him. We gain Christ by renouncing all of his competitors, all that would stand in the way of a life lived unto the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, all of the things that would stand in the way of that, we renounce it. All of the things that would make us think that we can merit our own righteousness before God, we renounce that. We are found in Christ as we trust in him as the treasure of our souls. He's the treasure of our souls. And we trust in him that way. And we know him more 
as we suffer along with him. That transformed view of sufferings in this world. We're entering into the sufferings of our Savior. We're walking the road that he walked. Not, of course, to gain our salvation, but that we might know him more because a heart that has faith in Christ loves him. So that gives us the proper framework to see how this passage today continues along those same lines. And what's at work in this passage is the frame of mind that we are to have unto the whole Christian life, this race that we are called to run. We're talking about this a bit tonight, too, but when someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, that person is not immediately whisked up into heaven. As Ephesians 2 said, we're given this eternal life, this otherworldly, supernatural existence. We're seated in the heavenly places, but yet, perhaps experientially and certainly spatially, we remain here below. People would not see any kind of immediate and drastic change as to our physical appearance. So we are called to live in this life with this experience of God's grace. We might say the gaining of Christ comes to us in different stages or different phases, different chapters. Think of it in three chapters, the Christian life. We'll use technical terms and then explain them. Justification, that's chapter one as, as, as far as it relates to us. There are other things that come before, the plan of God, the eternal plan of God, the working of the Spirit, effectual calling. But justification, we are declared free from sin upon faith in Jesus Christ in the gospel, free from sin's guilt. We're given all of the legal blessings. We went into the courtroom and we received a verdict that cannot be reversed. Righteous in Jesus Christ. Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5. Chapter 2, sanctification. We are progressively made less susceptible to sin's power. We are cleansed daily and conformed unto the image of Christ, refined by our great God and Heavenly Father. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Chapter 3, glorification. On the last day, we will be fully and finally freed from all the entanglements of sin. We'll be given bodies that are like unto the body of Jesus Christ, the resurrection body of his human nature. And we will dwell forever with God, completely freed from sin. Notice how all three of these phases of experiencing gaining Christ relate to time differently. Justification. For those who are in Christ, it is in the past. There is no future justification, no future aspect of our justification. That question will never come up again, freed from sin's guilt. Sanctification is in the present. It's what God is doing in us now. It's an ongoing work of God. We do not do it. God does it, and yet he does it through us. So in our own experience, we trust him and we live faithfully as as we see this work unfold. And glorification is in the future. It's something that we have yet to experience, but it is a blessed hope and it's a central hope to the Christian life. And what is framing Paul's reasoning here in this passage is that glorification is the final and total gaining of Christ. 
It is the final and total entering into the blessedness that begins when God calls us unto himself, when God calls us unto faith. So faith will become sight, and Paul is saying that is in the future, that is what we are running towards, glorification, resurrection. That's the driving force for this passage. It needs to be the driving force for our life in Christ as well. But what kind of mindset should shape this approach? You may notice in chapter or in verse 11, just before our passage today, that people read that and they say, does Paul have some kind of a doubt about getting to the resurrection of the last day? He says, I do this so that I may by any means possible attain to the resurrection of the dead. Is Paul doubtful that this is guaranteed? Or is he viewing it as something he has to earn? Does he need to earn his place at the resurrection? What you need to do is remember all of the things we just said, that frame of mind, justification, sanctification, glorification, how all of those things relate to time differently. And Paul is saying, what I have yet to experience is that total gaining of Christ at glorification. So what he's doing is, is he's rooted in the gospel of grace, that gospel doctrine, and he's saying, I'm assuming that all of these things are going to come true. And then he shows us how we live in steadfastness, how we live in perseverance unto Christ, striving for that end goal, that last chapter. And right from the start, we see the glory of the gospel at work. My professor, Dennis Johnson, wrote what a wonderful commentary on Philippians, one that I'm interacting with a lot. He, he likens verse 12 to being like in the starting blocks of a race. And then you see the runners go down, they're in the, the starting blocks. And it all hinges on what we see at the end of verse 12. Christ has already taken hold of me. He's already seized me. So the verse would read, I press forward, I I lean into seizing that for which Christ has already seized me. He's saying that he's, he's talking about pressing forward for that final goal of attaining Christ. But he says, for attaining that last goal, he is resting in the grip of his Savior already. He's already resting in the gracious grip of Christ it's said, I haven't had the experience of this, of, of riding on a horse in a horse race, but it's said that horses are ornery in the starting gates. And it certainly seems that way if you ever see it on television. Uh, they, they won't stay still. They're extremely jumpy in that tight space. They, they, they want to break free and get in front of all of their competitors to their right or to their left. And we can almost... If you think about verse 12 in terms of starting blocks, you can almost feel an orneriness of Paul here. Pressing on, leaning forward. But that sense is also supported by something radically opposite. The rest of the gospel, that the Savior, the victor, Jesus Christ, he's standing at the finish line already. Dressed in the the, the colors of victory. And he has already grasped hold of the Apostle Paul. He's already grasped hold of we who are in Christ. And so Dr. Johnson says, Paul's point is that he is striving to seize the prize at the finish line because Christ has already seized him at the starting line. Starting line victory. A different kind 
of race. It's a race like no other because it's a race to run as victors and yet a race to be run with unfettered intensity and effort. Michael Johnson, who was once at the top of the running world in 1996 in the Olympics, he had Nike make him uh, pairs of shiny gold shoes. People saw this as uh, arrogantly confident, right? filled with arrogance, filled with confidence. But what he said was that he simply had no doubt in the starting blocks that he had what it took uh, to win the race. Arrogance, boastfulness is not the way to go for us, but we need to understand that in the gospel of grace, we're already clothed with the colors of victory. We're already given the, the, the gold medal or the olive wreath as it was in Paul's day. Clothed in the colors of victory because the one who stands at the finish line has already grasped hold of us. So how to run in victory. Second, how to run in victory. That arrogance, that boastfulness reminds us of, a, of an old folk tale about a race, the tortoise and the hare, the dangers of arrogance and boastfulness, of overconfidence. The, the hare knew that he was faster than the tortoise. He had beaten other animals faster than the tortoise, and thus the hare figured that this would be an easy victory. See, his past achievements, his previous recognition, his current status of how others thought of him determined the way that he ran the race. You probably didn't think you'd come to church getting the psychology of the hare and the tortoise and the hare, yet here we are. That's not the the kind of confidence that shapes the race of Christ. That's not what we're called to do. Rather, we we are called to run towards that which we have not yet attained, glorification. It's guaranteed in being found in the victor, in Christ, but it is yet not what we have uh, achieved. So we're called to run towards that and not to rest in the achievements of the past. That's the the dichotomy that that Paul is setting up here. He's not saying that we can never remember anything in the past or never consider anything in the past, but what he is saying is that our personal righteousness, our self-righteousness, which he has just called garbage in the previous passage, all of those things which we would bring to God to boast in, All of that lies behind us, and Christ is ahead of us. So run towards that which is ahead. That's what he's doing. He says in this passage a couple times he's not complete. He's not perfect. He's a work in progress, something that has not yet been given the finishing touches. Right, The crown molding has yet to go up in the life and the heart of Paul. And he does it for a couple of reasons. He repeats this for a couple of reasons. I'm not perfect. And he he drives that home for for them. The first is that he knows that this error that is creeping into the church, the Judaizing heresy, accepts circumcision, resubmit to some Old Testament ceremonial laws, that had an aspect of perfectionism in it. You can achieve perfection in this life. And so he's wanting to confront that error. Paul, as the one who has just listed all of these impressive credentials, I'm from the right bloodline. I have the proper zeal. I lived the, 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 the proper life seeking to establish my own righteousness. This is the one who comes alongside the Philippians and throws his arm around them. And he says, really, I, I'm not perfect. I'm not complete. God still has work to do in me. And that leads us to the second reason. If Paul needs to adopt this mentality, then how much do the Philippians need to adopt this mentality? 
If Paul needs to adopt this mentality to remind himself that he is not perfect, how much do we need to adopt this kind of mentality? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's a work in progress. He has yet to attain what? That central prize, glorification. Again, you can't let yourself think that this is, not, this is something that is not guaranteed to those who are in Christ. It is. The victor has grasped hold of us. But as our life unfolds, that is the chapter that we have yet to reach. So he rests in the grip of his Savior, but the goal still lies ahead of him. So then we have this piece of running advice. You can't focus on the distance attained or the speed maintained. That you can't pause to say, wow, I've come so far already. I'm doing such a great job. No runner can think about anything except what lies ahead. I dabbled in running a little bit in high school. I wasn't by any means uh, a fantastic runner, but I ran the mile. And maybe that's the reason why I love it so much, or maybe I ran it because I loved it so much at that time. But the most difficult part of running the mile is the third lap, or at least that's what I found to be the hardest thing. The, the third lap, the legs and the lungs are both burning, but there's still enough distance ahead of you to cause you to despair if you start thinking about uh, how much you still have to go or all of the, the, the distance that you have run that far and so it was a singular focus you can't think about what you've already done I've already run so much my legs are burning you can't do that you have singular focus on your goal and what lies ahead and if we relate this to Paul's mentality of living in Christ the distance attained the speed maintained that would be focusing on your own achievements in righteousness all of the credentials that he lists Paul Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, lived according to zeal, was faithful to my God. All of that is exclusively in the past. And that is exactly what anyone trying to establish their own righteousness before God must do. The only thing that they can do is focus on what's in the past. All of your righteous deeds are in the past. So he's saying, your worthless self-righteousness is behind you. Christ is ahead of you. Run towards what is ahead, all the while resting in the grip of the Savior, the victor. This is a fundamental shift in mindset. And since that ultimate goal is glorification, this is an introduction to how to live every single moment of your Christian life. That you only arrive at that goal as you breathe your last breath. Paul says he forgets what lies behind. That's not a, a passive uh, loss of memory. Right? That is a, a, a discipline of the mind and the heart, as one commentator puts it. it an, an emphasis on disregarding what lies behind you, your own self-righteousness, your own achievements. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he does not run aimlessly. He runs to win the prize. This shapes his life. It shapes his life because he maintained Christ as the treasure of his soul. This mindset, this strategy, Christ is the treasure, I'm running towards him. This allowed him to find contentment in every circumstance, which he's going to talk about in Philippians. To be content, because as he ran, he knew that he had the prized blessing of being a child of God, who is both sovereign and good. He's in control of all things, and he is a good God who works every circumstance to the best result of his glory and my enjoyment of that 
glory. Not only contentment, but humility, selflessness, love, charity, all of these virtues are fueled by this mindset. If we throw away confidence to what lies behind, throw away confidence in our own righteousness, we will be filled with a humble recognition that we do not deserve to be those who rest in the grip of the Savior. We don't, be, we don't deserve to be those who at the starting blocks were grabbed by Christ the victor. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were powerful. But God called you. He made you his own. This humility fueled the selflessness that allowed Paul to rejoice in the spiritual growth of others around him. It's what it does for us. To be filled with this kind of humility allows us to rejoice and to pray for and to seek the the, the growth in grace of those around us. Others-centered humility. This also brings a whole different shade of meaning into our earthly pursuits, our earthly vocations. We begin to ask ourselves, fueled by this mentality, running towards Christ who is ahead, leaving what is behind us, uh, we start to ask questions, how can I use my time, my talent, my resources, my gifts, my vocation, my calling, in order to fuel my own running of this race and the running of others? These are confronting questions for all of us. What are the ways in which we fail to run the race with intensity and intentionality resting in the grip of the Savior. It determines present conduct. Your strategy to run a race, your mentality towards the race, it will determine present conduct. If you're resting in what you've already done, you're not going to be able to run the race with the same uh, zeal. Perhaps we can look into our own lives and see patterns of sin You can see how we have not been employing this strategy for running the race of Christ. And so then by God's grace, we can begin to run to win the prize. Not because we attain it by our running, but because it's already been won. We run as victors, but it lies in the future. So in verse 15, Paul says, let those of us who are mature takes such a view of these things. That word for mature is actually perfect. Let those of us who are perfect take such a view or complete, take such a view of these things. What he's doing, he's hearkening back to what he's already said in regards to perfectionism. Remember, that would be an error that had seeped into the church. So he's challenging those who have adopted the, the view that they can establish their own perfection this side of glorification. And what he's saying is the only people who are complete are those who live by the perfection of pursuit. The only sense of completeness you can have in this life is being totally taken up with the pursuit of Christ, that final and and total gaining of him that we have in glorification. It's a perfection of pursuit that gives you a purpose. Our purpose is running towards him. And we do that finally as we close because we run to see the victor and the victor is still the treasure of our souls. What what is most valuable to you? If it is Christ, then you will run to see him. That's the motivation for running. That's the motivation for running a race that has already been won by grace 
in Christ because he is the treasure of our souls. He is the source of our enjoyment. And so we read, let us live up to what has already been attained. You see, the call of God is an ennobling thing. It's an ennobling thing. It's humbling, but it also reminds us that it's something over which to rejoice and in which to glory. The God of the universe chose me to be his own, to work out his salvation in me, to make himself known to others in me and through me. You've been given this status that is unequaled in this world. A child of God, prized, chosen, Given life in Christ, the sheep hear his voice. He calls them by name. The chief shepherd calls his sheep by name to give this nobility of purpose and calling. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God had it on his mind to call you. That's the upward call, the heavenward call that you see in this passage. He's he's given you this heavenward call to share in the glory of Christ Jesus. What a matchless wonder, what a what a priceless gift. That's the motivation for our, for our running. We have before us the treasure, Christ. Our final and total gaining of him is glorification, the resurrection of the body. And we will know him fully at our death and when we are given our resurrection bodies. We have the call of God upon us, empowering us to run the race. He has clothed us already in the colors of victory. But he calls us to run this way, to run this way with intensity and purpose that we may arrive at the finish line to see the one who purchased us from the beginning. That is living by grace. May we do so each day by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise and adoration. Thank you for this word. Build us up through it. Through your spirit, bring these scriptures to life in our hearts. Give us the courage to live according to grace. Give us the the, the love of Christ to see him as the supreme treasure of our souls. Fuel us by that grace in the gospel. May we love you. May we love others. Seek your glory. Run towards Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. turn to number 529 in our